0: To the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing the study of the book of 2 Timothy, and today we look into the second chapter of this book. Class teacher Doug Brady has given the title of this lesson to Comparisons to the Savior and His Apostle, taken from the 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. In this lesson we learn more about the meaning of being saved, and The Methods of Building Spiritual Heritage. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. with a short time of fellowship before that time. Over 140 people attend each Sunday, and we have many visitors who come to hear the Word. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium, ready to begin this lesson, so let's open our Bibles to Second Timothy, chapter 2. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady.
1: Let's talk about Second Timothy. Before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend together studying your Word, and I thank you for preserving this book for us that we could see at a time when persecution was so rampant in the world against those who believed in you because we are approaching that time very soon unless something changes. And so I pray, Father, you'll help us to understand the principles in this book and what Paul is trying to share with Timothy and that we can be encouraged by it and strengthen it and see the need to finish strong, to be spiritually persevering through our faith in you and the grace that you provide us. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we have talked now in the second chapter about the grace that God provides to us when we ask for it. And what does that grace equal? Power. That's exactly right. Who said power? Very good. Power. That's exactly right. We we saw that Paul wanted Timothy to build his spiritual heritage by teaching others. Does God expect only just a few of us to teach? Now, all of us can teach. Maybe just one-on-one, but that's still teaching. He's given us examples of a, of a good soldier. And a, a committed athlete. And a toiling farmer. But now, he finally wants to relate to us a full understanding of what really can be ours. So we're going to start... Again, picking up the passage in 2 Timothy 2.7, and I want us to see a relationship here. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, the first word we want to recollect in there is this word consider. A mere reading of it is not enough. It doesn't mean to just read it and go on, but it means to ponder and digest what you have read. Consider what I say. And then there's this word understanding. And this word should be taken to mean where everything fits together and comes together. I want you to see how it all fits together, is what he's saying. Now, it's important, I think, for us to see here. Just a second. Who does the considering? We do. We have to do the considering. Who gives the understanding? The Lord gives it to us. You know, I don't understand this. Go to God and say, show me what to consider and give me the understanding that you want me to have. And he does it. You can't say, oh, well. Now, I have to say there's one caveat. If you're the glass and he picks it up to take a drink and there's our old friend the cockroach in there, he's not going to fill it. But if you have a clean vessel for him. But I want you to understand, he will give understanding. That is his promise here. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, this is like so many things in our relationship with God. At the very first, when your relationship started, at the moment of justification, it was a marriage. A marriage of what? Grace. And faith come together to produce that marriage uh, of the groom and the bride that God has given us. Now, here again, you see, this is a marriage. We consider, he gives us understanding. If you don't consider, will you get understanding? No. This concept is sufficient to meet all of our needs. This understanding, everything you need to understand, he will give you understanding for. Now you say, Doug, could it be that you're pushing this verse? Does it not say understanding in everything? Well, let's ask us this question. Does it support that proposition anywhere else in the scripture? Well, let's look at a place in the Old Testament. Proverbs 2, starting in verse 6 For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, and he is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Notice that first part of verse 7. He stores up wisdom. What he says, I've got a storehouse here of wisdom that I want to give you, and I'm ready to dispense as soon as you need it, but you have to ask and consider. And I'll give it to you. Now, some people you know say, Oh, that's the Old Testament. Have you ever heard anybody say, Why do you think they call it the Old <laughs> Testament? Now, here's the thing it's one book. I want you to turn over real quick in your book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, all scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction. Correction and righteousness, the man of God may be thoroughly for all good works. Now, here's the question. When Paul wrote that passage, what was the primary scriptures that the people had? The Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. That's what he was talking about. The scriptures, when, he, when Peter said, For a prophecy did not come in old time by will of man, but by holy men, moved by the Spirit. Talking, most of them, they're talking about the Old Testament. To say the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore? I was going to say something rather strong. (laughs) And maybe I better not. But that is wrong. That is wrong. And we're going to see some of that today here in just a second that I want you to see. But let's look in the New Testament. Does the New Testament say anything about gaining understanding from God? Well, in John 14, 16 and 17... Jesus is speaking and he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The spirit of truth. He's going to bring truth to you. A little later in that chapter, in verse 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. One more time in John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And finally, one more time in 1 John 2, verse 27. As for you... The anointing which you receive from him abides in you. That is the anointing of the Holy Spirit when you were justified. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things. God is going to provide us the understanding The Scripture speaks. He is the fountain of knowledge and the fountain of wisdom. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Wisdom, I mean, knowledge is information. Wisdom is the application of that information to the current set of circumstances. And so that is available to us. That is what he's saying. Now, the world is going to try to tell you that you really can't be certain of that. In fact, you really can't be certain of anything. Well, I want to give you some examples so that you can, you can be clear. Uh, I thought, you know, I get to pick the examples. So the first one I picked was having to do with the law. Have you ever heard of Supreme Court justice by the name of Mr. Justice Brennan? Yes. Justice Brennan is the darling of the progressive liberal scholars and what they will tell you about the Constitution. Let me give you two quotes here from Mr. Justice Brennan. It is arrogant to pretend that from our vantage point we can gauge accurately the intent of the framers of the Constitution on application of principles to specific contemporary questions." What is he saying? You know, we just can't know what they thought. Well, let's go to another statement and the same thing. All too often, sources of potential enlightenment, such as records of the ratification debates, provide sparse and ambiguous evidence of the original intention. And apart from the problematic nature of the sources, Our distance of two centuries cannot but work as a prism refracting all we perceive. In other words, we can't really know. Sir, can we just read the words and understand what they say? But the translation here of what he's saying is, it was written 200 years ago, you can't really understand what it means today. That's what he's saying. And as a result, he and his ilk can say, it means whatever we want it to mean. What the, what the Constitution says is what five of them say it says is what they want. Now, let's look at it from a scriptural point of view. Uh, I have gone and done some research on some liberal Bible scholars uh, who, uh, let's say even progressive Bible scholars, I'm not going to specifically name them, and I would never even bring up the name uh, uh, Brian McLaren. And those who are working with him. But let me look. let you listen to some of what they say. Ask me if Christianity, my version of it, your version, the Pope's, whoever, is orthodox, that is meaning true. Here's my honest answer. A little, but not yet. To be a Christian is a generally orthodox way, in a generally orthodox way, is not to claim to have truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on the wall but we just keep seeking. You see what he's trying to say? Who seeks to determine the truth? You do. I grew up thinking we figured out the Bible, that we know what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. Oh my gosh. How do you know the records we have of Jesus are really what happened? I would have to say that I cannot know this with absolute, undoubtable, unquestionable certainty. That's what they want you to believe. You can't be certain of anything. One final one. Most leaders I know share this agony over the question on homosexuality. Frankly, most of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. Well, I know absolutely unquestionably what we should think about them, that they are being used. There's two choices when you're dealing with these people. Either they know exactly what they're doing, And allowing Satan to use them, or they don't know for sure what they're doing, but they're still being Satan's dupes. Only that's the only two possibilities, and we need to come to understand that and and see what that means. But their key here in all these statements is we can't really be certain of what the scripture says and what happened. We just really that is a lie. Why? Because understanding comes from whom? God. And if that understanding is still fraught with uncertainty, that means that God is uncertain about what happened. And now, ridiculous the statement that would be. So the world's attack on Christianity is, all we have is uncertainty. Now, let's go on now to, to verse 8, because Paul's going to speak of an example here of our Lord. What does he say to Timothy about, Spiritually persevering when it gets really tough. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David, according to my gospel. Now, this verse and the two that follow are going to summarize this key to what we should do in facing persecution and questions and the desire to quit, desire to give up. You see, they speak of suffering followed by glory. Now, I want you to think about this a second. You could say, now, he's given us these three examples, Doug. What if you trained like a soldier, suffered like a Navy SEAL might, or an Israeli paratrooper, and then you lost the war? What good would that be? Or you sacrificially prepared for an athletic event, but you failed horribly to even place. Or you went through the toil and effort to bring in a great harvest and the crop was destroyed by a locust plague. All that suffering, what's it worth? Well, you could ask those questions. And from the world's point of view, they may be valid questions. But the victory in this war is not ours, but his, and he promises victory. The race will be won by the strength that he provides. We will not lose. The harvest will be plentiful. As it is His. You remember what we talked about in in Matthew 9.38? Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to bring in a great harvest. No. No, that's not what it says, is it, Steve? Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Why? We got plenty to harvest. We don't have enough workers. Enough harvesters. Enough farmers. You see, our Lord doesn't ask us to succeed but only to be faithful and leave the outcome to him. Paul then tempts Timothy to remember two things. Actually, three things. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he's risen from the dead. Remember that he's a descendant of David. Now, let's go back first to Christ, Jesus Christ. As you think about that, you know there's a lot of people that think Christ is his last name. And if you were to meet him, you should hold out your hand. It's nice to meet you, Mr. Christ. (laughs) Christ is not his last name. Christ is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos. Christos is the translation of the Hebrew word. I don't want to pronounce this exactly right. So let me look at it real quick just to make sure that I'm saying. Uh, Mashiach. Now, we've taken Mashiach and we have transliterated it into the English to the word Messiah. Christ. Christ. Messiah are absolutely equal. They both mean the anointed one. The one that God is going to send. The one that God promised. And it is not a name, but a title. And we need to see that this is the one. Remember who Jesus is. Is he just the one and only son? No. He is the only begotten son of the Father. And he was sent to save the world. That's the first thing he said. Second thing he says about him, besides Christ, he is risen from the dead. Now, risen from the dead. Why is that important to bring out? I want you to know, these, this verse contains the two key scriptural proofs of the deity and kingship of Jesus. Risen from the dead. First of all, if you look at that verb in the Greek... Risen, you will find that it is a participle that is perfect tense passive voice. And this perfect tense passive voice it is very important to understand the action of the verb. You see, it, the verb action occurs in the past, but it has very real present tense effects. The effects are felt in the present tense. And so although Jesus was risen in the past, the effects of that are felt and considered and come to pass here, now, in our lives. Now, what do we mean for that as far as an understanding? Because I want you to see this. This phrase speaks of Jesus' divinity. Let's ask ourselves a question, and I want you to see how this works and how important this is. Let's say my good friend Hayes here. Let's say that that happens to you. And 10 days later, God raises you from the dead. And now you're back. What did you do? All you did was die. You didn't do anything. God did it. You're not special. God is. Right? If you were to say the only one who raised Jesus from the dead is the Father and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say much. About our Lord. Does it prove he's God? No. But if Jesus raised himself from the dead, oh, that's a different story, isn't it? Who can do that? That means he is something special, something unique, something nobody else is. He's God. Did he raise himself? Is there a passage, uh, Steve, on that, do you think? Like maybe John 10, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus is speaking, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Wait, now, who's laying down his life? Jesus' life? Jesus says, I lay down my life. Why? So that I may take it again. The purpose I'm dying, he's saying, is to be raised from the dead. Who's raising him from the dead, does he say? I may take it again. Who's who's raising Jesus, does that say? Jesus is. Now, so we can't be mistaken. He's going to make sure we, can, we know. No one has taken it from me, that is my life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. Now, am I saying that the Father wasn't involved in Jesus' resurrection? No. No. Am I saying the Holy Spirit wasn't involved? No. But Jesus was key in doing that. He received the authority from the Father and the command to do it, which shows His divinity and that He has a right to die for your sin and then pay for the sin and come back to life. If He stayed dead, where would you be in relation to your sins? Up the river without a paddle. Now... Because of that fact that he is risen from the dead and we need to spiritually persevere, what does the writer of Hebrews say again in Hebrews twelve two? fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith? Now notice, is there a definite article there before faith? No. A lot of people quote it that way, say it that way. There is no. The faith, that would mean the message. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He created faith. If we need more faith, where do we go? He'll provide you with stronger faith. He is all about strengthening and growing your faith. Faith is like a muscle. All you have to do is work on it and it'll it'll become stronger. Of course, then again, if you do nothing, it atrophies, does it not? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, he had the power to raise himself. And what does Paul say we should do? Fix our eyes on Jesus. Have you ever done that? Do you ever think about that? What is involved in that? How do you fix your eyes? Well, how do you get a picture of Jesus? Painted right here. That's where you get it. All you have to do is spend time on it, considering. You know, this considering, ponding, we could use the word meditating. Now, that's scary to some of you, but meditating is the key to seeing this. Now, his resurrection from the dead authenticated his teaching because he predicated belief in himself on his predicted bodily resurrection. Paul saw that. That's why to the Corinthian church he wrote, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So that's the first thing that I want you to see about that resurrection. The second thing I want you to see, it says, he's a lineal descendant of David. Do you see? remember that in that verse? A descendant of David, according to my gospel. A descendant of David, what does that mean? Well, this second phrase, what did resurrection prove that he was divine? Second phrase here proves that he's fully human. You know, we need to understand that Jesus is fully human and fully God. It's called the hypostatic union. And this phrase preaches that, teaches that. And we need to come to understand it. Jesus was descended from real people who God designated in the past to be his ancestors. Usually you think, well, ancestors, that's something you know in the present about what happened in the past. Not with the Heavenly Father. He stated, even in the distant past, who would be Jesus' ancestors. And as a result, they not only proved his humanity, but also his divinity. Because this was a prophecy that was filled completely, 100%. And, you know, the key to this prophecy is, is there anything Jesus could have done to make this come true? No. I mean, do you have any control over who your ancestors were? No. Jesus was born to a father from the, well, the heavenly father was his biological father. His adopted father was a direct descendant of Solomon. His mother was a direct descendant of Nathan, who was also a son of David. And the two lines joined together. And so he was exactly that. But as we go back now and step back a second, I want you to see this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended to David according to my gospel. You remember, where is he right now? The right hand of the Father. I want you to think about something. What are the most important things to remember about Jesus as Paul admonishes Timothy, what should we be remembering? Well, most of us, if we think about it, well, I think the most important thing is we would say is when he was born. You see, he was born of a virgin. That is, he's actually the biological son of God, and he came to earth. He existed before and then took on uh, human form. He, he didn't regard his godhood as something to be grasped and not let go of, but sacrificed himself to become a human being. That's in the past. It happened. Is it important to know? Yes, it is. But we're talking about perseverance right now. Well, some say, no, the most important thing to remember is he gave us a promise. He's coming back. He's coming back for me and you, if you're a believer. And that rapture promise, that's the gospel we should be preaching right now. That's important. But that's in the future. Do we know when that's going to happen? No, we don't. You know, he told us he's coming back for us. If you look there in John 14, 1 through 3, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. But it may be, that Paul wants us to consider something different here than those two things. Something we don't often think about. What's Jesus doing right now? Right now. Well, he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. We know that's, that's where he is. So, what, is he just sitting back and enjoying the show? No. There are several important things that he is doing right now that if we remember that help us in our need to spiritually persevere. First, you find it in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing in a word? Interceding. Interceding according to 7.25 of Hebrews. Interceding. What, well wait, what does an intercessor do? I looked up this word, this English word, intercession, in, in the dictionary. Let me show you what it says. The word intercession means the act of using your influence to make someone in authority forgive someone else and to save them from punishment. Now, I believe Jesus' intercession is even more expanded than that because he is intercessing for those who are unbelievers and he's providing intercession for those who are believers, both. It's going to someone with authority and asking for someone else. Can you persuade Jesus to intercede for you with the Father? Yes. Yes. Because He is the mediator between you and the Father. He is the intercessor for you and the Father. The problem we have is who knows best what we need? We think it's us. But no, it's not. It's Jesus. And He will give us that kind of understanding. So what He's doing, He's beseeching His Father for the lost. But, he's, but also that the Father enabled those... He has charged with the task of personal evangelism. One of his primary means or subject matter of his intercession is to help you to see the need to be spiritually reproductive. Spiritually reproductive. You know, there's people here in our class, one sitting right over here, another sitting at this table, who we could ask and they could tell you stories of spiritual reproduction probably in the last two weeks. And in fact, isn't there coming up an opportunity where they're going to have the Christmas party for the homeless and you are invited to come and be there to help and minister to those people and share the gospel with them? Isn't that right, Les? In two weeks. And if you need to know, want to be involved in that, just talk to Les. He would be more than happy to share that with you. And those opportunities are there. But for some of us, we go back. Well, in two weeks? No. We haven't had any spiritual reproduction. What about four weeks? What about four months? What about four years? What about 40 years? Why not? Do you know how? You know, some people think sharing your faith has to do with advocacy. No, it's not about advocacy. Is there a need for advocacy at times? Yes, there is. Sharing your faith is the humble presentation of a plan of salvation that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you know how to do that? We should be ready at all times to be able to do that. To give an answer for the faith that resides in us. And the problem is we don't. Can God change that in you? Yes, if you'll let Him. So intercession, I think, is important. There's something else That he's doing right now. It's found in Romans 8.33-34. Who will bring a charge. Against God's elect. God is the one. Who justifies. Who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yet rather than was raised. So that he might. Who is at the right hand of God also. Intercedes for us. He is still interceding for us. You see. Being at the right hand is the very best place to be to intercede for me. Do you see that? That's the closest you can get to God, the most important position next to the Father. Now, there's a second thing that he is doing I want you to see, we want to talk about. It's found in 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Every time I read this verse, i got to stop, and I think about a flower. It's grown over in Holland, called a tulip, and it's spelled T-U-L-I-P, and L stands for limited atonement. (laughs) Calvinists believe in limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect. Jesus only died for the chosen. Is that biblically accurate? No. It is. Well, wait a second. How do I know? What does it say? He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Not just for the elect, but for the whole world. But what does it say he is? An advocate. What is an advocate? Very good. In fact, the definition in the dictionary says the word advocate, when used as a noun, means a lawyer who defends someone in a court of law. Steve, do you need defending? I'm not going to ask you why. I'm just asking you, do you? And he is there to defend You know, and probably of everyone in here, he spent the most time having to come up with very creative defenses for me. But the fact is, he is defending us. Who's accusing us? Satan. Satan. Satan's there. He's saying, did you not listen to the thoughts of that guy Brady last night when he woke up? What do you say about that? Well, Jesus says he was just thinking about his wife. No, but he was not thinking the way you want him to think, and going back and forth. And now I'm going to have to, all kinds of questions on the way home. <laughs> that was an example I just made up. <laughs> it has no, no, nothing in reality. Yes, sir. he had conditions. He come both world. but conditions. Those people, they believe in. Right, those are the only ones he saves. Those are the ones who believe him. Let's, let's confirm. I want to confirm this position of advocacy. In Revelation 12, 10, it says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God day and night. Satan never quits accusing us. Do you see that? But there's coming a time when he's going to be thrown out of heaven, thrown out of court, never to be able to allowed in again. And Jesus is the one who responds to, our, to those accusations on our behalf. In Hebrews 9.24 it says this, For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but in heaven itself now appears in the presence of God for himself, for us. That's who he's appearing. Now, Paul does something that most of us cannot do, and that is use himself as an example. Let's look at the last part of 8 in verse 9 in Second Timothy. According to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Now, some people have a problem with the first thing it says here, the last part of verse 8. According to my gospel... They're saying, oh, Paul's got some special gospel. He must have got it when he was down in Horeb. He's different from everyone else, his gospel. No, that's not what it means at all. And they just simply do not understand the language in which it is written. In fact, if you look at the two points of his gospel here, the resurrected Christ and the descendant of David, those are the same two points that Peter makes in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. That was his gospel too. But let me give you an example to help you understand this Greek concept here. My best friend in the world is sitting right there at that table next to Vera. And I don't mean Mark. She is my friend. Does that mean she's not anybody else's friend? No, but it, she's my friend. And it works specifically well with this example because his gospel, what that means, it is at the core of him. It is everything to him. His whole life is about this gospel. And that's what he means when he says, my gospel. Now, for which I suffer hardship. Yes, because it's worth it. Why? Because there are people who need to be saved. And that's what Paul is all about. And you notice... He's coming here and he's saying, I'm like a criminal. I'm being treated like a criminal because I'm preaching the gospel. That's going to happen to us too soon. But the fact is, that's what he's saying. Yes, I am treated as a criminal. Don't be embarrassed about me, Timothy. Because you see, this is not important. That is that I'm treated as a criminal. Because I'm being faithful to my Lord and I'm finishing strong. That is what is important. Then he says, the word of God is not imprisoned. I may be, but the word is not. What does that mean? Isn't the word of God just written words on a page? No. It's living and active. Maybe the passage that best describes it to me uh, can be found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 10, where it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. It is a living, active thing, like it says in Hebrews 4.12. And we need to understand that. It can never be imprisoned can never be stopped, no matter what Satan does. And so as a result of that, Paul says in verse 10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Do you see what Paul's everything is? The gospel message, the love and forgiveness that God sends to cure the disease of sin that humankind have. Paul is informing Timothy, I'm willing to endure whatever, to suffer whatever befalls me in view of his gospel perseverance. Now, for whose benefit? Is it for Paul's benefit? No. For Timothy's benefit? For the church's benefit? No, but for those who are unsaved, who will be saved by his ministry. Now, who are the chosen that Paul speaks of? Who are the chosen? The scripture refers to them as the elect. The elect. Who are the elect? Those are the ones that God knows will say yes to him, based on Romans chapter 8. Those are the ones, and John 3 18. Those are the ones he knows. Those are the ones he's talking about. What the problem is, Satan has tried to distort this concept of the elect. And, well, why do I have to be so concerned? If they're elect and God's going to save them, why do I have to suffer so much? They're going to be saved anyway. I mean, does that not make sense? It would seem to. Why suffer if they're going to be saved anyway? Well, that's not what Paul says. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. How does Paul view the need to evangelize? Did he believe that they'll be saved anyway? No. His attitude was this. I must go and I must do whatever I can to carry God's message to the saving and undying. Paul's understanding of election caused him to be certain of his success and the need to labor tirelessly in the fields of the Lord's harvest. And then what about the men who he mentored? And then the ones that they've taught. And you see the importance of finishing strong. That's what we're all about here. That's what God is calling us to do. Now before we finish today, I have a few final thoughts, and then we'll be through. Number one, in Ephesus, where Timothy was pastor, they had a problem with false teachers. Teachers teaching things falsely. Now, in those days, these falsifiers would claim that Jesus was divine. He was God, but he wasn't really human. He's God, but not man. Today, we have a similar problem in that the enemies of the gospel claim that Jesus certainly was human, but he was not divine, that he is man, but not God. Either view destroys the good news that Jesus took the penalty for our sin upon himself and reconciled us to God. And so the right understanding on this issue is at the core of the doctrine of soteriology. Now what is, there are certain professions like doctors, lawyers, and uh, theologians. They want to pick words that you don't know so it makes them seem real smart and you're not so smart. The doctrine of soteriology. That's just the doctrine of salvation. Now, why they don't call it the doctrine of salvation, instead of the doctrine of soteriology, I'll let you make the determination. But that's the concept here. Did this really happen? Is he? Can we be certain he was all of God and all of man? Well, if you look in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, it says this: Have this attitude. In yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word grasped is catalabano," kat- and it means to grab from somebody else. He says, and held on to. I'm not going to let go of this, you know. You've heard the story sometime about an elderly woman. Somebody comes by and grabs her purse. But she holds on and won't let go for dear life. And finally, he has to give up because she's not letting go. In the same way, this word says, that's what this concept is, to hold on and not let go. And he says, Jesus did not take that attitude that I should hold on and not let go. I am willing to leave heaven and go down to earth and become a human too. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant to make himself in the likeness of man. He was God, and he was man. Fully God, fully man. We need to understand that. A second truth I think is important for us to see is Jesus is no more popular in our day than he was in Paul's. Not at all. Marginalization, then ostracization, and finally overt persecution will come to the way of the faithful believer very soon. But our Lord's gospel, in spite of that persecution, Ostracization and marginalization, our Lord's gospel still reaches receptive hearts. And strangely enough, as persecution increases, more hearts will become receptive. Really, as persecution increases, more hearts become receptive? Yes. We need to be prepared to be able to share with those receptive hearts. And then the revival can come. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could gather together here and that we could understand your love and your forgiveness for us. Help us to understand these passages in 2 Timothy so that we can be prepared for spiritual perseverance. So we can see we can't give up. We can't lose heart. We have to continue on. And then when the persecution comes, there are going to be more opportunities to find a receptive heart. And that we need to be there when that heart becomes receptive. To be able to share the good news that Paul and Timothy and all those who have fallen have preserved for us. Alone with the Holy Spirit. Now Father, I want to thank you for our friend Carol. And I pray that you will heal her. That you will take care of her. That she will know that we do care about her. And her concern for what happened to her. And Father, I pray that you will protect this church. I know that in all our nation, if the bad guys could pick one church to take out, it would be ours. And so I pray, Father, that you continue to protect it. Continue to maintain your hedge of protection around it and not let them through. Help us though to remember that these men and women that seem to be doing things that are so dastardly, they're not our real enemy because we're fighting against things that aren't flesh and blood but spiritual powers of wickedness. And help us to remember those are the ones who are a real enemy. Those are the ones we should detest and not want to give any quarter to. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit.